Hello, and welcome to episode 152 of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Hemesbergen. I'm Embryonix on Twitter. That's at E-M-B-R-Y-O-N-X. And today I am joined by some of my usual faves. I've got Caitlin Argeros. Hi there, guys. Leon Cazerel on Twitter and uh, on Discord. Yes, and we've also got the uh, wonderful, the actor-type guy, Greg Delmage. Uh, hi, everybody. I am, uh, yeah, I'm Greg Delmage on Twitter and GDelmage on Discord. And hi, happy to be here. I don't know why I give you a Delmage, like Amelie Du Delmage kind of thing. It happens a lot. Someone just yeah. asked me about that recently in an audition that my name was Delmage. And I'm like, no, it's German. It's Delmage. 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 And also, you are a, a certified like mocap actor now for video games, aren't you? I sure am. Uh, FIFA 2019, which some of our audience might play, just came out on uh, this past Friday as of this recording. And I'm in it playing uh, chiefly Kevin DeBrenne, uh, who's like a the, he's Manchester United. I forget who plays. Is he, a soccer, got, is he a soccer DPS or a soccer he's player? A, <laughs> he's a, according, actually, one of our close friends asked if I also take cheap, cheap shots like he does. So I guess he's uh, he's good at scoring cheap shots, oh, is my understanding. There's uh, some sentiment laced into that statement. Apparently, I don't know. I'm not a big on, on the footballs, but uh, he seems like a nice dude as I had to study him to understand his voice and all that stuff. He seems really cool. That's about all I got. Wonderful. But yeah, play it if you like. I'm in the story mode. You can play Greg in a real life video game now. <laughs> And uh, when you're not playing FIFA 19 and, and whiling the hours away on the, the football field, as it were, you can also listen to the dulcet tones of Robert Fenner. Hey, it's me. Um, <laughs> Random Encounters, cutest little lush. This is a cry for help. Please. Agreed. <laughs> that is so you. Uh, I forgot to call you by your full given name, which is Robert Bibby, Bibby Bennett Fenner, right? That is, that is correct. Um, thank Why? you for... Thank you for nailing the pronunciation. I know that it's uh, a little bit a little bit difficult when you read it, but you you did that spot on. Yeah, what is that? Uh, English? Yeah. <laughs> I always thought it was Babby Bennett. Oh, Babby Bennett. No, 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 no. Just don't ever say that to me again. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you cracked a cold one open. I was just thinking right before I started this recording that I should have grabbed a beer beforehand, but I'm also out of beer at the house, so we're going to have a very sad episode of Random Encounter. <laughs> this is a try, actually. Your lack of, what's your beer, Derek? What is your beer of choice? Um, you know, I like a couple different types. I like my stouts. Um, I like chocolatey or espresso-y beers. Hell I yeah. I also really like uh, a wheat beer sometimes, like a crisp kind of ale um, that I can just <laughs> kick back with and record a podcast to and not get too effed up. Started like you are just going to describe your, your typical male. But okay, well, then that's you fair. mentioned beer. Then I got stout it. is also applicable. Start, um, dark, and handsome. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, yes, all those words. Caitlin, what do you drink? Um, I don't really drink alcohol, but when I do, I like hard cider. So, yeah. like, usually I'm with you. I'm there with you. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay, that makes me feel less awkward. Yeah, I'm with. Yeah, I don't do it often, but it's either wine or or cider. Yeah, cider is a nice chill. Haha, <laughs> uh, double meaning. <laughs> I was out at this um, girls and boys. I was out at this this uh, sort of hole in the wall cider bar in my neighborhood uh, last night with some friends um, that were doing these these flavored ciders. There was like a lemon meringue cider and a blood orange cider and a, a cherry bakewell tart cider, and they were all about six percent, and none of them tasted like alcohol at all. And it was like, uh. Well, you know, we we'd better just have two because yeah, very, very dangerous. dangerous. I want all of those. <laughs> yeah, 
have all so three. So everybody, welcome to Brewing Encounter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is along the lines of that episode you had pitched a while back. Close. It's actually accurate. We'll get there. <laughs> so what are we doing today, Derek? Well, as much as I'd like to just talk booze to the apparent discomfort of a couple of the people on the show, let's uh, let's talk some video games, shall we? There is one in particular that I have been putting uh, a lot of time into recently. I, I, I guess there are several, but one that I just absolutely marathon. Like I dove into this game and I came up for air two days later after getting all but one trophy. So that I was I was like that close to getting the platinum. And I was like, Derek, you need to chill out. You have a life to live. Um, if only I had my own time traveling device and I could go back in time in Time Spinner or like in Time Spinner. That was that was my attempt at an introduction. Uh, so Time Spinner is a new, uh, newly released, like another quote unquote Metroidvania style game. Uh, I know that description becomes very tiresome, but it's pretty apt for this type of game because it's so very inspired by Castlevania Symphony of the Night in terms of... Um, like probably both aesthetics to a degree because it's fairly gothic. It's like gothic sci-fi, I would call it. Um, very inspired by Symphony of the Night and Super Metroid in terms of its like structure. It is a side-scrolling 2D pixelated action game with RPG elements. Um, and it has been in production apparently for nine years if you don't even count the time that the creator spent sort of daydreaming up all of the, the scenario and the lore information um, when he was in grade school. So... Time Spinner is nearly published by uh, Chucklefish, who did Stardew Valley, and as they're a publisher, they didn't like create the game, but they published it, so they have a pretty, uh, I think they have generally like good taste in selecting games, like their curation of what games they decide to publish, so mm-hmm. it's developed by Lunar Ray Games, which is headed by basically this um, one developer, Bodhi Lee, and he brought in Jeff Ball to do the soundtrack. Jeff Ball is... A composer, he did the soundtrack for Tiny Barbarian Deluxe, and he's also the violinist for Steven Universe. Oh. So oh. he's he's got some interesting pedigree, and uh, so he came in and made the soundtrack, which is phenomenal, and I will probably talk more about that later. But yeah, so Time Spinner, um, it's like the latest in a series of pretty high-quality Metroidvania-style games to release this year. And unlike many of its contemporaries, I think that it's one of the absolute best and executes pretty much everything Chasm tried to do and failed. Uh, have any of the rest of you played Time Spinner yet? I have poured most of my day into Time Spinner. I picked it up <laughs> on uh, I picked it up on Friday, um, and I mean, watching its trailer and looking at its art and you know hearing the buzz about it. Um, it's like, well, you know, it's, this looks like it's probably going to be a decent symphony of the night, like, um, but with some, you know, with a few hooks here and there, um, specifically it's, um, time freezing, uh, mechanic and, uh, boy, that's, um, it's, it's what I expected and it's what I got and I'm really, really happy with it. Um, I, I gotta say, I'm a little surprised at how heavy it gets. It's got, I mean, it's, it can be a little bit heavy handed, but it's really got that oppressive tone mm-hmm. and also yeah heavy in terms of like it immediately jumps from yay it's somebody's birthday and we're celebrating into oh the corrupt imperialist like regime is coming to wipe all of you out and your mom's dead oh good mm. yeah or at least implied to be um very quickly they've got yeah. a take on the 14 words in there 
um, <laughs> famous white nationalist slogan where they've subbed out white children with uh, magical children. And I was like, oh boy, wow, okay, you've just gone there. Yeah, uh, that's that's one critique that I have of Time Spinner. Overall, I think it's an amazing, uh, amazingly well-crafted game, but the dialogue is incredibly direct. Mm, yeah. And not always the most elegant in terms of communicating what it wants to communicate. Like the themes, I think, are great and worth exploring. And I think that they still touch upon, like, uh, I was going to get to this later, but I think Time Spinner has, like, the most queer characters I've seen in one game ever. Mm. Uh, other than, like, an explicitly queer game. Like, I don't know. I wouldn't even, I was going to say Dream Daddy, but that's that's another conversation because I don't think that Dream Daddy is queer at all. Um, mm -hmm. I think Dream Daddy is a game where you, play as a gay person but it's made for straight people mm. um anyway not to like disparage because dream daddy is still is a fine game it's just not targeted to people like me i suppose and that's all right so time spinner yeah has um pretty much every member of its cast is in some way queer and a lot of it isn't really uh touched upon in the main dialogue that propels the story forward like the story of this main character lunace um She's a time messenger and she is part of like this clan who protects this magical artifact that can allow somebody to travel through time. And she's tasked with um, using that to basically forestall ruin or to warn her clan about this empire encroaching. Um, and then of course things get taken a little bit too far and she has to end up like um, solving those issues and traveling back in time and trying to find a way from stopping her clan from being annihilated. Um, but pretty much every character you encounter over the course of the story, and there's not that many, there's probably like eight, uh, eight to 10 characters in the game. Um, they're all like in some way queer. And I know that queer is a, a charged word for a lot of folks. Um, I'm using it in a pretty um, like academic uh, context here, just saying that like they're either um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, or um, there's a transgender character. And I find that a lot of the um, characterization is like, it means something to somebody like me because it's interesting to see so many of those folks represented in this game. However, um, mm -hmm. to get all the way back to Robert's point, a lot of that feels very like, kind of, it does feel heavy handed to me or like overly direct or straightforward with the way that they introduce those, um, mm. those elements of characterization. Like there's a conversation where uh, this is, I guess, a minor spoiler for the game, but um, I just said that there was a transgender character, and this is also something that's optional and in a side quest, but there's a character who's like talking to the main character, Lunace, and saying, oh, and there's something that I've been hiding about myself. I just wanted to tell you that I was born a man, but I have always known in my heart that I'm a woman. And Lunace says, thank you so much for trusting me with that. I really appreciate you telling me. And it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's like yeah. the textbook uh, conversation, uh, right? Of like when people uh, say, how do I be supported if somebody comes up to me as transgender or whatever? Like that, they just took that word for word basically. I made that. Yeah, without like having a dialogue is like what actual people would say. Right. <laughs> it's hard for me to be too mad at it because it's coming from a very sweet place. Yes. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it, it is kind of, it's, it's pretty goofy when you yeah. spell it out like that. And there's a point where a guy says to like, oh, you know, you obviously have a crush on so-and-so and your character says, uh, don't make assumptions. I'm interested in both men and women. And they say, oh, I'm sorry for assuming that about you. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's it's like Robert says, it comes from a good place. But um, I think a lot of it is just like so uh, stripped down 
Mm. Like, there's not really a conversation happening. It's just there. That being said, I still appreciate the inclusion um, because it is so rare to see all of that uh, present in a game in general. And especially, like, I didn't expect any of it whatsoever in this game. Um, mm. So it came as a welcome surprise to me. And I will emphasize that not that I think that any of this is shameful or bad, or I think it's wonderful, but it is pretty much all optional. So you can play through the game without like experiencing it. Um, and I know I've seen a lot of backlash actually on Steam community and stuff. Well, People you see, it, it doesn't matter if it's optional, it needs to be um, removed and stamped out, right? <laughs> According to you know, a lot as of gamers, um, yeah. <laughs> we must not. <laughs> we, 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 we must not and we must not have something that we will not enjoy. Yeah, but um, anyway, I, th I think I've belabored this point enough. Um, what was your take going to be about the, the that line in the game, just that it was direct, like I was saying? Or? It was direct. At the same time, I was like, okay, right, yeah, we're going for um, fascism as the enemy here. That's fine. I can get behind that. I was a little surprised that they, like, took took the 14 words almost verbatim and, you know, just subbed out one adjective. Um but I don't know, maybe it's the kind of climate where we need that kind of thing. I mean, I think there's a, a better way or a slightly more like, I don't think it goes too far. I just think it's a little bit clunky. Um, but like for every like weird bit of text or howler of a line, there's some really well um, articulated ideas uh, present in Time Spinner's narrative. Um, I'm thinking particularly about like you, you, as you go through the game, you find like the mother's, your character's mother's diary, um, who's like talking about how she grew up uh, trained to be, um, trained to be a time spinner. And she's like watching the rest of her clan who, who are time spinners going through the motions. And there seems to be like, traversing world lines and um, going back and forth between parallel dimensions as well as uh, time travel. So, I mean, there was one entry that really stuck with me where um, this, the clan's current time spinner like comes back in time um, and her husband runs to greet her, but you know, she's got a different husband and a different family because she's come from a different world line and um, the, they oh, both have to deal with that. Right, I think I think it was the other way around. the The man was the the time messenger, and then he oh, my mistake. And, and because this is like, I I remember this just because she uh, has like two wives already, and mm. then he goes to embrace her, and she's like, "Oh, were we together in your world or your timeline?" So they have mm. to reconcile that, and then um, that's something of a plot point that they. It's not like a major plot point. It's not really in the main story mm. at all, but. If you dive into the data logs, you find out that there's a little bit more to that and like what happens when they sort of try to reconcile the fact that they were once together in a different timeline. Okay. So I think that's interesting. Mm, yeah. So I was, yeah, that, that touched me in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, like, I guess we should talk about the time freezing mechanic because that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's the big thing that Time Spinner does differently. Um, and yeah, I don't really think it's a big thing. No, it's really not. It's really used sparingly, um, where you can freeze time for uh, for a certain amount of time, and you'll occasionally, you know, use that to freeze an enemy in the sky, and then use them as a platform to get someplace higher. Um, and yeah, it is so spare. It you almost never have to do this. 
Right, and you can also use it as a strategic option in battles, like if you're fighting a boss and you want to stop time and hop behind them to avoid an attack or whatever. I yeah. I forgot I could. I didn't I use it. Constantly forgetting. Yeah, throughout most of the game, I just never used it because it doesn't really feel essential. It feels like an additional, like it feels like an option, but never yeah. like a necessity to get through anything except for moments where you're using it in platforming. And even then there, I can think of like five times in the entire game where you have to use it to get up to someplace. Mm. And eventually, like in a lot of those cases, you end up with a double jump eventually. So you just don't have to use right. it again when you backtrack. Yeah. Um, so I think like... I think a lot of people may feel that that's too spare. Um, and it's definitely stuck out at me as just not having a presence. Um, however, like I think about that. And then I also think about its inverse um, in particular guacamelee, which made heavy use of this like parallel uh, parallel dimension shifting mechanic to do some very, very difficult platforming very, very early on and um, completely scared me away from that game and um, has scared me away from its sequel as well because it's just asking for like precise dexterous moves with this sort of clunky system that um, I don't feel like I can pull off and I didn't have fun pulling off so mm -hmm. I think I'd rather have something that uh, like time spinner that like has this unique mechanic and is you know uses it in moderation rather than I don't know. I guess there are different games for different audiences, but I think, you know, with Guacamelee, I really wanted to experience that game for its wacky writing and its fun um, art style. And I just couldn't cope with it after like the first boss. Oh, interesting. Battle. Well, there's something okay. to be said for them trying to set themselves apart, I suppose. And certain mm -hmm. games will have their gimmick and be like, you play it with the gimmick. And that's the whole thing to set it apart from other parts of the genre whereas yeah it's kind of interesting when you have a game like time spinner like well we have a gimmick but you don't necessarily need to use it if you don't want to mm -hmm. and it certainly uh will make the game more accessible i think for less skilled players if like if somebody's struggling with a boss you can very easily just like make use of that mechanic to to position yourself strategically but i just don't feel like like there's very i can't think of any boss actually that requires the time stopping mechanic to beat it. Like you can always learn the pattern and dodge or whatever. It's not like you have to stop time and like run to the other side of the room or hundred percent get hit. If that makes well, sense. There's, a, there's a trophy for not topping for not stopping time and not getting hit during a boss battle. So it's obviously like not ever essential. Yeah. yeah. But I think what uh, one of the other things that really impresses me about time spinner aside from just like this, that that gimmick is, a gimmick, but it isn't uh, something that's so heavily relied upon that you have to do it to get through the game. Um, I'm just mostly impressed by the incredible like aesthetic and how well it feels uh, to play. It's oh, so, yeah. so close to Symphony of the Night in terms of tactile feel, like character control. Um, you've got a backdash, which I did not realize until very far into the game. I never really used it. Um, <laughs> I always forgot that I had that too. Yeah, unlike Chasm, it's, it's not as clunky. It works a lot better. Um, Lunace, the main character, she's kind of a she's a very swift character, very nimble. Um, her jump doesn't feel overly floaty; it feels very well controlled. Eventually, you get a double jump, um, and her main method of attack is via orbs. So, in this game, instead of having like weapons that are dropped off of enemies, there are uh, a finite number of special orbs, and you start with the blue orb, which is just basically like uh, she flings it like a psychic attack, psychic orb. And um, orbs have kind of three, what do I want to call them, like three sides to them, which is 
uh, probably not appropriate because an orb is a sphere. Um, <laughs> orbs are like tri tri pronged. I don't know what you want me to call this. There are you three... got a standard attack, a special attack, and a passive ability. Thank you. So, an orb you can equip um, two orbs. She's got like a main and a sub orb, and whenever you hit the square button or whatever your default attack button is, she kind of flings it forward, and um, she does them in rapid succession. So if you're pressing the attack button, she's just going orb one two one two one two. And uh, it's a very fast attack animation, and I, I found it very pleasing, like, right off the bat to use. So in addition to having sort of your ability to use that as a weapon, you can also use that same orb to cast, like, a spell where you hold up your magic, hold your magic button to charge it and let go. So for the blue orb, she does an aura blast. That's like a, you know, Hadouken type thing. And then you can also use a passive, um, which sort of enchants your orbs or your character in some way passively. So I, I think, does the blue orb give you the... Uh, the sides or is that something else that's the is green it... orb the blue orb gives you a damage boost but you also take more damage oh okay all right so as fenner just said the like the second orb you get the green orb is for uh, it's the blade orb so when you attack she'll kind of throw out a sword similar to maybe like a sword animation in castlevania symphony of the night your spell is like a gigantic blade that's as big as the screen and so then the cool. passive it is super cool the passive makes your little orbs that float around your character have uh, like buzz saws on them, and if an enemy touches them, they'll take a little extra damage. Or like if you're uh, throwing the orbs out, let's say I use the blue orb, but I enchant it with the green orb for the passive. Every time I throw out that blue psychic attack, psychic orb attack, um, the blades will do a little bit extra. So I think there's something like ten orbs, maybe between ten and twelve. I can't remember. Uh, in the game. So each one has those variants, like the regular attack uh, animation, the spell, and the passive. And so you can come up with really interesting combinations um, to, to utilize the orbs to whatever play style you want to enjoy. Like there are some very fast ones, there are some very slow ones. And you can have three loadouts that you can switch between at the touch of a button. So you can like swap in the middle of battle very quickly if you want to. Um, my favorite was I found like uh, there's a moon orb that's basically just like the first one you get, but it's a little bit longer range, a little bit slower. And I uh, enchanted that with a, a passive that made them shoot icicles every single time I hit with one. So I just had this like super fast going um, icicle barrage in, in, in conjunction with a close-up melee strike. And I like um, using fast hitting ones. Oh, that's what I used. I didn't use the moon one. I used it for a bit. I ended up using a wind one which kind of deploys a rapier. So it was like super fast rapiers with lightning, uh, sorry, icicles flying out of them. And then all the while I could Ooh. utilize like the giant sword spell or whatever. So Ooh, I haven't found that yet. I'm excited. Yeah, it's it's a really good one. And you can use a different orb in your sub slot from your main slot. So you could have a combination. I could have blue psychic orb in my left hand and blade in my right hand. And you just kind of deploy them alternately if you want to. So I think this strikes a good balance of being a you know, like you have a lot of attack options, like a lot of weapons that feel very different in terms of weight and speed, while also allowing you to level them up. Um, and, and it's not like they're super disposable, like you might find five different short swords and each one has a different stat of like one or two attack or whatever. In this game, the orbs level up the more you use them. So you can choose a loadout or three loadouts that you enjoy and, and strengthen that as you go through the game. Um, and it really lets you make the most of whatever your play style is. So do you have a like a favorite orb combination or anything that you're really enjoying about the combat center? Um, I like the, um, I like the fire passive ability that makes your orbs burn. And then that can inflict like a constant burning damage um, effect uh, when it hits a foe. Um, 
at the moment, like I'm still getting a lot of mileage out of like the double hammers, the iron orb, because um, that's like the sword orb, but like a little bit slower and harder hitting. Uh, I recently got the um, the plasma orb that shoots out our arced lightning as well. So I'm kind yeah. of working on building that up because that's it's almost got like a little bit of a homing ability to it. And I'm just mm -hmm. able to, you know, that that also depletes your magic gauge. Um, but um, that's pretty satisfying to fire off. And you can even do like a passive uh, from one of the orbs that makes the aura depletion less significant, or I think yeah. one like recharges it passively so you can kind of make up for that. Yeah, that's, yes. it's fantastic. So I, I'm just sort of experimenting at the moment and trying to make sure all my orbs or all the orbs that I like using, which are at the moment, the the iron orb, the plasma orb. And I think I'm, st I'm still using that sword orb because I like, I like the way it looks a lot. So mm -hmm. I'm sort of, you know, rotating them in and out to make sure they're all of a sort of equal, equal tier. Yeah, I did that a bunch too. And I found that there were even some types that didn't seem as useful up for, uh, like initially. And then once I figured out a use for them, I was like, oh, there's a, a blood orb that's kind of gnarly. It just sort of, it's it's like blood bending from Avatar. It basically just like makes this little congealed uh, splatter of blood appear in the air and then drain into you. So, oh, I'm here for that. Yeah, so if you, first of all, it's it does bonus damage, I've noticed, to humanoid enemies. And second of all, because it starts like some distance away from you and then tracks inward to you, you can use it to trap enemies. Like there are knights that have shields. And so the damage hits them kind of at the back of their hitbox and actually does damage to them and then does more as it comes forward. So it really behooves you to actually experiment with different weapon types because there might be an enemy type that you may be like, oh, this is kind of annoying. But once you find a way to deal with them effectively, you're like, ah, okay, this is no mm -hmm. problem at all. Um, I think if there's a main complaint I have about Time Spinner beyond some of the writing being a little bit too heavy handed. It's that uh, I wanted more of it. <laughs> it's very lean and um, almost, I would say like almost too lean. I really like focused experiences. Like I go back to it time and time again, but one of my favorite games is East the Oath and Felgana. Um, like that's my yes. example of yes. a game that's so like perfectly paced. Good, I'm glad you agree. Just because there's, it doesn't really feel like there's any wasted segment of that game. Like every dungeon is just long enough, and the plot moves at a fast enough pace, and I never feel bored or like feeling like it's all filler. And Time Spinner does the same thing, um, but maybe I'm just being selfish or greedy. But I, I liked it so much that by the time I finished with it, I, I just wanted more. You know. Well, that that's a that's the sign of a really good game that leaves you wanting more than rather than leaving you just you know exhausted and spent. Yeah, and there are many games that I've gotten tired of in the eleventh hour and just pushed through because I needed to or wanted to see it finished. Um, and Time Spinner was not one such game. I immediately started it a second time. Um, I beat it. I beat it a second time and got the true ending. And then I started a new run on the Nightmare difficulty right after that. <laughs> so, oh wow, that really has had an effect. Yeah, it's rare that I get so hooked on a game that I immediately want to start it again. I usually I'm just like ready to shell it by the time I see credits roll. So, yeah, I think Time Spinner is a really excellent um, addition to the sort of resurgence of Metroidvanias we've seen recently. I think that it mm -hmm. does something very differently from, say, Hollow Knight. Um, they're, I mean, it's funny because they're both like kind of the same game in terms of like their core. Uh, they have the same structure, mm -hmm. but they feel very different to me. And I do Be think different. that. Yeah, I think Time Spinner is a lot. It's a lot leaner than Hollow Knight. And that's not, neither a good or a bad thing. It just is. It's it's kind of like a smaller game. But I uh, mm. highly recommend it. If you're 
if you've seen it in motion, um, why haven't you bought it yet? If you haven't seen it in motion, go look it up. It just Google it. There's like a PlayStation blog post, which is where I found out about this just a couple weeks ago, that has some beautiful GIFs of the game in action, and you can really get a sense for how it's going to look and feel when you play it. Time spinner, highly recommended. On the way more, what, what am I trying to say here? On the not single player front, Jesus, I need I need that beer or something, or a coffee, or both. <laughs> Irish coffee? Uh, on the not single player front, we have got uh, the long running Final Fantasy fourteen, and Caitlin and I are both still playing it very much. Patch 4.4 released just a few weeks ago. Um, for those who are really unaware of the structure, Final Fantasy 14 for every sort of expansion, there seems to be this cycle of about five big updates to the game. And uh, we're on the fourth major update to the Stormblood expansion. So we're, we're getting pretty close to wrapping it up, it seems. Um, we expect there to be a new expansion announced at the uh, Fan Festival in Las Vegas this November. But until then, there is still stuff to do in Final Fantasy Patch 4.4. So, Caitlin, I know that you just streamed it today for RPG Fan, did you not? I did. I went through all of the new uh, instanced uh, content for the game. So we had uh, two new dungeons added. Um, one of them is a story dungeon called The Burn, which has beautiful music and is fun. Oh, so good. Another is uh, St. Mosean's Arboretum Hard, which is a, basically a harder version of a Heavensward dungeon, which is mm, doesn't have as good music, and it's still fun. Um, Final Boss can be kind of... The final bosses in both dungeons actually can be, can be challenging a little bit, um, depending on you know how you handle mechanics. So that's it's always kind of nice to see them kind of up the uh, the ante a little bit in, uh, in dungeons. Um, yeah, they've gotten kind of safe recently. Yeah, um, and also of course uh, added the the uh, latest and the last uh, raid tier for uh, for Stormblood's uh, raid content. Um, this is of course the Omega raid. Uh, it's called Alphascape, um, and it is very good uh, for really fun, awesome fights, even on normal mode. And uh, the story wraps up uh, really, really nicely. I was really happy with how uh, everything ended up, and um, is there's some cuteness in there too. So, so cute, Alpha. Yeah. Alpha, I love Alpha so much. Um, and then, of course, uh, we have a new uh, primal. Um, this primal is part of the uh, the Four Lords story. Uh, it's uh, Suzaku, so it's another one of the uh, you've seen them. They get used all all the time in various different games. So you know, you have uh, we had Biako before. We fought Gembu in the story dungeon or a side sorry sorry side dungeon, and now we're fighting Suzaku. Um, and they are all their fun fights, lots of great music across uh, all of the content, really. Um, some of my favorite dungeon and raid music uh, that has uh, that Soken has produced, and it's amazing that this man has this kind of output. I know. Um, I worry for his health. I like, know. Speaking of, right? Well, he Which... said that it's it's a lot. He's, I mean, I don't know how he does it. And it's why, like, as much as I would love him to do, like, a mainline Final Fantasy, I don't want him to do anything until 14 is done, because I can't imagine him taking on multiple projects with the kind of, uh, the, the prolific uh, music that he has to put out there. Yeah, and I think this patch in particular had a larger influx of new music than probably the last few, because... In the, the Stormblood patch series, we've had these um, 
alliance raids based on the Ivalice universe. And so we've had uh, Ravenaster from Final Fantasy XII was one of them. And then now we had basically Ritterano Lighthouse um, also from Final Fantasy XII. But they've been taking music from XII and Tactics and pretty much just like presenting it unarranged. It's just the original songs. So while those patches have had those new tracks added to the game, like this one in particular is almost all new compositions with the exception of um, the aforementioned, we, we said Alpha. Alpha is like the Chocobo's Dungeon Chocobo that they added to this game. And he's part of that Omega storyline. And you get like the ending theme from Chocobo's Dungeon as one of the tracks and it's so cute. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think that he put, I think there was more new music in this one, definitely than the last patch, possibly even more than the one before that. I'm not sure. Yeah, he's he's really been like he's been killing yeah. it, and 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 they're great this patch. Everything in in it's super good. Yeah, well, part of it is that every fight in Alpha Escape has different music, and only one fight has reused music. I think uh, I think ten ten is definitely reused. Everything else is new, and then of course the Savage mode of twelve has uh, two different themes. So <gasps> it does. Yes, I didn't know that. Um, it has, you know, that really super epic music that played in the, in the, the, uh, trailer for, uh, 4.4. Oh, that's okay. the, that's the second half of, uh, Savage 12 is that. Gotcha. Well, they've really, uh, upped the ante on each of the Savage, like final raids for this entire expansion. Like yeah. the first one we had X death and then there was like in the Savage difficulty, there was Neo X death and then that had its own music. And then we had Kafka, <clears throat> excuse me. And then whatever, like one winged angel Kefka or uh, winged Kefka, God, God Kefka. Kefka? There we yeah, go. God Kefka. Yeah, and there's they have the four movements of Dancing Mad, which is insane. And then yeah, okay, I didn't. I guess it makes sense that they would follow in the pattern, right? But I didn't realize that there was another song. Um, need to check that out. <laughs> it's super epic. Wow. Yeah, I would say like these fights. I don't know how they managed to keep making them more and more. I mean, like, the word epic is really what comes to mind, and I'm so loath to use that word so often, but my god, like, the the final fight of the Heavensward Raid series for Alexander, I thought was, like, the pinnacle of a four-man, or sorry, eight-man raid, basically, in terms of how amazingly cool it could get, because he fought the giant Alexander, you know, like, the castle, basically, himself, and there's a part where it stops time, and, like, the music stops and stuff. And I, th- I just was like, oh my god, I can't get any cooler than this. And then we got all these cool fights in Stormblood leading up to what we finally got here, which is the confrontation with Omega. Um, it's been obviously like foreshadowed the whole time because the whole raid series is based around him. But um, you have this super cool fight against Omega in his robot form. And um, it, it has great music, uh, like a callback to, what is it, Locus? What's the name of the cruise chaser music? Oh, gosh, I'm really bad. I don't remember. Yeah, I, I don't remember either. But it's it's kind of like got a similar sound to it with the, the distorted computerized kind of vocals. Um, very, very fun fight. And then the final one against Omega. I guess this is like kind of spoilers, but um, against a, a humanoid Omega in, in the final one. And it's like you're fighting it in freaking space and like there are giant lasers everywhere. And it's just so... It's so cool. Like I don't know how else to explain it other than I just feel like it's amazingly cool. And when I did it, I was like, "This is awesome!" Like edgier seat kind of, kind of fun stuff. So. Yeah, and it's challenging. I mean, the normal fights are quite. Cha- I mean, comparatively, uh, compared to the normal version fights in uh, 
Delta Scape and Sigma Scape, I think they upped the challenge there. And what I've experienced of Savage has been all the first first turn this time is got a lot to do and it's a pretty hard DPS check for the first fight in the tier. So they are definitely kind of upping the ante a little bit that way. Mm-hmm. Which is good because I guess it gives everybody something to do while we wait for more content, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I would say overall it's a really good patch. And you went through uh, all of the new instant stuff on the stream today? Uh, yeah. Uh, minus the savage raids because okay. that's, yeah, that's, that's a lot to... Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, excellent. So absolutely, if you're listening to this episode and you want to get a look at some of these fights, please go check out the stream archives um, over on our Twitch channel. What is that? Twitch.tv slash, is it RPG Fancom? Should be, yes. That sounds right, yeah. Okay, cool. With um, with the upcoming festival, what, uh, what they always usually release a class two with each new um, major uh, expansion, right? Mm-hmm. Do you have yeah. any any hopes? to see in there Hmm. so there's been a lot of speculation and apparently like according to some people there have been some leaks but a i haven't looked into it and b i don't know how like much we can trust those yeah Um, why spoil yourself it'll we'll hear about when we hear about it yeah yeah but but there's so like the pattern has been if they're going to follow the same pattern is that in november they'll probably unveil the expansion like give us a name and show us some kind of a cg teaser but that's it and then they do subsequent fan festivals in japan and europe and last like last cycle they announced a job at one and then a job at the other is that right caitlin uh, i believe so yes which was okay. samurai and, and red, uh, red mage. mage right so most of the rumors that are swirling is that we're going to get blue mage in the new expansion i'm Ooh. not sure how that would work but um i loved blue mage in final fantasy 11 so i think it would be super cool i just don't know like a big part of blue magic is learning from enemies, right? So yeah, how did they make it work in eleven? Uh, you actually had to go out and like get hit by the abilities by enemies, and you'd have a pretty low chance of learning the the spell. Um, yeah, it was like actually very very difficult in Final Fantasy eleven to collect all the blue magic. But then once you did, um, each spell had kind of like a, a cost, a set cost, and you had like a special blue magic interface of setting each spell to your character and then you could only take like you could only change it in towns in 11 and then once you were out in the field you just had access to whatever that was so um people came up with people would like optimize and come up with the best spells for whatever content which was that'll always be a thing but yeah i wonder if if they introduce it in 14 if they would go the way of having like its own special interface and a special learning method and stuff um i guess it's possible Right. Well, the the job quest system is set up, I think, nicely for that. Uh, I think the the question would be like, you know, since the job's going to start, um, presumably it would start at fifty, the way that Red Mage and uh, Samurai started at fifty. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you explain all the skills you have up to fifty? But I mean, you could you can totally see how they would use job quests to say. On this job quest, you have to go and fight this monster to learn this skill because it's important and whatnot. And the quest is yeah. about you obtaining that spell because yeah. you know, a lot of times that's what happens. You do a job quest, you get a spell, although Stormblood changed that too in that you you now obtain only some of your spells from job quests and the rest you just get from leveling. So it, it depends on how they want to do it. Um, I've also heard rumors about Dancer uh, maybe, uh, joining the fray, and uh, they recently did a an interview um, with Yoshi P 
uh, I think it was on Dual Shockers. Um, and when they asked him about what he like just theoretically would like to play or to see, he uh, threw out uh, uh, arithmetician or calculator from tactics. Oh, <laughs> um, which would which go really well with the Garlean stuff. I think it'd be really cool, and you could see it being. I would see it being a caster, no matter what. But it could be either a offensive DPS or a healer character, depending on uh, what they want to do. Or it could yeah. be kind of like Red Mage and can do a little bit of both, or something like that. That's such but a wild class. I'd love to see their take on that. Yeah, and if you do it like tactics, it's whatever. If you learn stuff from each of those jobs, I wonder if that would play into. Oh, you, we see you have levels in this, so then you get spells from them as well. So you could be conceivably a, a red mage calculator. It'd be interesting. I think they'd have to do some pretty like significant um, balancing on that if that were to be a thing. Because otherwise, like some people, you would you would have to level all the jobs to be like uh, optimized for whatever content kind of thing. But true. I, I I'm hoping that the new expansion for 14 has some more shakeups than Stormblood did. I still think Stormblood has been a f- like a phenomenal um, expansion. I just think they need to do something a bit different than just like okay, here's two new classes. Here's like the new series. You got five dungeons from levels uh, 70 to 80. You know, like it, I just think something should change. I don't know if they'll ever abolish like the job crystal system or the class restrictions like the the, sorry the role system where you have dps healer and tank as the three roles um i would like to see some more hybridization but i don't know how that would affect the balance of literally everything that has come out up to this point so what do you want derek you want them to blow up the world again i mean they're kind of they're kind of building to that they're kind of building to that actually (laughs) uh i I mean yeah, we don't want to spoil main story, but the the, the main story quests uh, put in motion lots of different little breadcrumbs that probably are going to get uh, pulled into 5.0. Uh, I don't I don't see all of this getting resolved in one or two patches, so it's probably set up for uh, the next expansion. There's some pretty interesting stuff, though. Like I'm looking forward to seeing where this all goes. Yeah, I think um, hopefully this is vague enough to not be really considered a spoiler. I'm not going into like specifics of what happens in this patch necessarily, but what they seem to be building towards is this idea that like light and dark need to be balanced and that everything you and your compatriots have been doing throughout Final Fantasy XIV story is tipping the balance way too much towards light. Um, mm-hmm. And so light, light is its own <clears throat> like calamitous force if left unchecked. Both so, sides. Oh my god. Please no. no. Yeah, so I think they're building towards this idea of like y'all been doing too much light stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Like light doesn't necessarily equal good. Light just equals light. So by banishing the forces of darkness, etc., you're kind of tipping the scales and we may be looking at like, you know, like a supernova type. I don't know. Interesting that they went like a a sort of wow way where then there was like a like quote-unquote good classes quote-unquote dark classes and then there's kind of like a war there to see how that lands and see if like the dark can bring back the balance by playing into more like the quote-unquote evil stuff that'd be interesting yeah i don't i don't know um we got some revelations about the the nature of the garlean empire who's been kind of the looming threat throughout final fantasy 14 in this last patch so it'll be interesting to see how they play with that and how um you know, how they make this into more than just like they bad fight bad guy, you know, because they've yeah. shown now that the like the Garlean Empire is not a monolith. There are people who are 
rebelling against a sort of fascist regime within it. So it's it's going to be interesting. I think Final Fantasy XIV still got a, a lot in store. Definitely. Yeah. Caitlin, the other game that you've been playing is also MMOE and uh, features a lot of characters, although all of them under your control. Tell us about your experience with the Xenoblade 2 expansion, Torn of the Golden Country. Okay, so Torn of the Golden Country is, it's, I guess you would call it, it's the biggest piece of DLC that was part of, that was uh, sort of um, shown to us as part of the expansion pass, although you can buy it separately. You don't have to have the expansion pass. You don't even have to have Xenoblade 2 in order to buy Torna if you want to. Um, it is a, it's a prequel. It details the events of a pretty pivotal time that's referenced a lot in the main game through dialogue and flashbacks known as the Aegis War. Um, and it involves some characters that you see in the main game, um, but just, you know, it's like 500 years before the events of the main game. Um, and it is, uh, it can be a fairly substantial piece of content. It took me 36 hours to beat the, the main story. I've seen people be, say they beat it in as little as 12, and I suppose that's doable. I am not oh, wow. the fastest player. So, you know, you know, uh, uh, take my word with a grain of salt when I say 36 hours. Um, my Took final on 20. Yeah, I mean, my final play time when I beat the main game was 170. Um, so I'm okay. clearly not the fastest player, but it's a nice, sizable chunk of uh, Xenoblade content that I think um, doesn't overstay its welcome. Um, it feels a lot like a mini bite of Xenoblade that gives you sort of all the things you would expect from a Xenoblade game without giving you uh, lots of lots and lots of busy work like the mercenaries or having to do the blade gotcha from the main game. Oh, that sounds um, heavenly. Yeah, there's no blade gotcha. You have a fixed oh. part. So I'm, I'm hearing that I'm going to need to beat the main game first. Otherwise, this is just going to spoil everything for me. Uh, I think it depends on, I think it's going to be different for every person because it's a prequel. It, you know, it takes place before the main story. You're not necessarily spoiling stuff that way, but you will learn things that happen during this time period about certain characters that get mm -hmm. revealed via flashbacks in the main game. And because it's a smaller piece of content, they don't do as much world building or lore building. They don't mm. spend as much time explaining uh, the whole concept of blades and drivers. Mm -hmm. um, so will you miss things if you play this before the main game? Sure. I think the ideal setup is to play it after the main game. You know, it probably will have a greater impact on you if you do. Okay. But they, they've tried to make it as accessible as they can for people who may want to play this first. Um, you have tutorials up the wazoo explaining the gameplay, so you shouldn't worry that you're not going to know how to play this game. They explain it to you, and they make a lot of nice improvements to the gameplay. The battle system is faster, and I like what they've done with the... Um, uh, the the vanguard and the rearguard uh, system. Mm -hmm. So basically, in the main game, Xenoblade, you always played as the driver, and you could swap between three different blades, and you only ever semi-controlled the blades when they would do specials, and that just entailed basically just doing um, the, uh, the button prompts where you have to hit the B button at the right time. Um, and that was that was that was cool and fine, but it always felt kind of weird because 
blades are supposed to be these super powerful living weapons and you never actually really play as them. You're always just playing as the driver. So in Torna, you have, you play as both. And the idea is that every character in your party is either in a vanguard position where they're the ones at up front doing a lot of the attacking or in the rearguard position where they're doing support, more support uh, skills. And every character has different arts depending on which position they're in. You can swap between those positions uh, on any given, they call them teams, each uh, driver and blades uh, combo form a team. So after a little bit of charge time, if you start off playing, say, as Laura, who's the main character of the expansion, uh, you can then swap to Jin, her blade. And uh, doing so, every character has a switch art that they perform when they switch, which is nice and flashy. And also um, every switch art has a piece of the blade combo, sorry, the driver combo, which is the, the classic uh, break, topple, and now launch and smash in Xenoblade 2. Um, so you can, there's a bit of a strategy in determining, okay, well, if I start off as this character and some other character breaks, then I can switch to my blade and the switch art will topple and then someone else can launch and then switch to their blade and smash. So it gives you a little bit of additional strategy in terms of figuring out how to best pull off driver combos and blade combos. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's fun. I think it makes everything feel a bit more action packed and it adds a little bit of strategy, especially they, uh, they sort of incentivize you to switch as much as possible by giving you what's called recoverable HP. So whenever you take damage, a portion of your HP bar will be red and you can get that red portion back by switching, uh, from one, switching the positions basically. So you're encouraged to switch often, between characters, not only to maintain your HP, but also to take advantage of arts and the driver combos and stuff like that. Um, so I think it all, to my mind, I, I like it a lot better than the main game, even though the basic system is still the same. You're still, you still have three arts. You still try to pull off driver combos. You do the special, the elemental specials uh, to perform blade combos and then the the ultimate goal is to have enough elemental orbs around the enemy that you burst in a chain attack for massive damage um they also i think really good idea was that they changed how you get elemental orbs around uh enemies in the main game you had to do a three-part blade combo to get a single orb around enemy now as long as you're doing uh a special as part of a combo, each special in that combo generates an orb. So you can poten- you can get like three potentially different elemental orbs after one blade combo instead of only one. So it lets you build up elemental orbs a lot faster, which lets you do chain attacks a lot faster. It just makes the whole system work faster. And I think that for people that found the battle system in the main game to be uh, slow because of enemies needing lots of HP so that you could perform all these combos and taking so much time to get the elements orbs up to do chain attacks. It's all going to run a lot faster and I think be- feel a bit more uh, fun as a result. Um, that sounds dreamy. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. 
Uh, so, I mean, yeah, and there's, there's lots of little things that they've done. I mean, the battle system is the big one. And the, I think for a lot of people, that'll be a big one. Obviously, like I said, there's a fixed party. There's no, you know, you don't resonate with cores anymore. So there's no gotcha mechanics. There's no 0.001% chance of getting Cosmos or whatever her, her, uh, her, her rate is, um, which is great both for a game mechanic and it doesn't waste your time making you, yeah. you know, endlessly opened up, you know, random cores hoping you get a special blade. It's also good for the story because everyone in your party is involved in cutscenes as opposed to the, you know, necessary weirdness in the main game where only the main story blades show up in main story cutscenes. It was always kind of weird to have, you know, like two-thirds of your party not show up in the main story because of course how could they have lines for every rare blade in main story content right. um so that works better um as a result field skills are a lot less annoying um because uh, you always once you have the full party you have everyone all the field skills you might need to level them up by you know filling out the uh, the affinity nodes, but it's a lot, there's no shuffling and trying to like math, okay, I need five ice blades on my party and I need yeah, light yeah. and I need this and that, you know, it's none of that that stupid crap. So, so you can just focus on like whatever criteria you need to fulfill to raise their skill yeah. levels. So like fight five caterpillars or whatever, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. Instead of having to switch out your party every five seconds. Yeah. So it's great. And I mean, like it doesn't fix absolutely everything. Um, there's still stupid stuff. Like you have to go into the affinity menu for blades for their upgrades to actually apply. The game even has a tutorial telling you how to do this. And I still don't understand why it makes no sense whatsoever um there's you know there's still you know the having to go and kill ran x number of random enemy in order to get those affinity nodes um and there's still no bestiary so there's you know you you had to kind of try and remember where you saw enemies and things like that um so it's not like it fixes everything, but I think it addresses enough of the big issues that people had with the gameplay uh, in the main game. And there's just the fact that it's it's more focused because there's not as much to do. There's not, you know, a gigantic amount of side quests. Uh, you don't have quests for all the blades. You know, you don't have the mercenary system wasting your time. So it feels a like a tighter focused game. Um, and I mean, I don't know. I I think it technically can be played before or after. I do think that it's probably best to play it after. Um, there's there's some things um, that people who have played the main game might be a little confused about. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's on the other hand, it's like if you have no interest in Xenoblade Two, or if you tried to play Xenoblade Two and you just really could not slog it out. I don't know that I want to say absolutely you shouldn't play this until after you play the main game. I don't want to, you know, have someone mm -hmm. feel like they should have to go through a, a hundred hour RPG that they don't like to play this expansion, this DLC that is in a fair amount of ways. I mean, kind of better. I thought to myself multiple times when I was playing through it, I kind of like this more than the main yeah. game. I and I kind of wish I could explore the rest of all rest with this crew. I don't super mind Rex. I don't super like him, but he doesn't annoy me. But 
I actually was thinking several times playing Torna. Damn, yeah, I like these guys better. Sorry, Rex, you kind of suck. So, yeah. like at the very like least, <laughs> at the very least, uh, not having Torah in my party is a huge plus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to see what every I want to see what Xenoblade Two has to offer. So I guess it's just going to be me and Torah for a little bit longer. <laughs> um, but uh, you only have to deal with him until you get Morag in your party, and then you can just never uh, use her ever again. Yes, I can't wait. She's boy. When I first saw her, Queen. Yeah, she's great. She's, She's a, a better tank than Torres anyway, so... Nice. Yep, she is. And you get to play uh, Hugo, her ancestor, in Torna. So oh, nice. And he's perfectly nice. He doesn't get a lot of development, I think, but he's, he's fine. Yeah, there are a few characters that um, they needed more development. One of them, it's not, it's not necessarily Hugo. There's another character that I think was a huge wasted opportunity. Who? Um, uh, Minoth. Oh yeah, like, it's cool points. seeing him, but yeah. he gets barely any screen time, and they waste several opportunities for him to, I don't know, interact with a certain character that's very really? important to him. So, yeah. so I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of um, weird. Yeah. So this brings me to actually, uh, I don't want to like. Well, this is a podcast, right? So it's it's a discussion, and it may it may be one of disagreement. Um, I agree with you. I think that Torna two or Torna is a basically like a more streamlined and arguably better experience than the core Xenoblade two. Um, I I don't think it can really like function independently of Xenoblade two altogether, just because you need sort of the background for the world or like why these people matter. Um, I I'm fine with the like final battle and stuff of the game. I just I kind of feel like a lot of it is pointless um i i think that uh i don't know i felt like there were some missed opportunities like minoth is one example of a character who didn't really get a lot of expansion um and you know going into it that this is set 500 years before xenoblade 2 so like things uh you know like it's not like every character is going to survive just because of time right and stuff but other than blades who can live longer depending on if they like become flesh eaters or whatever but uh yeah i just sort of felt like um largely there was wasted potential for ex- for fleshing out these characters in interesting ways or like coming up with revelations that could like influence how i felt about them sort of in their in the, the main game um i guess my main example is is laura because Laura is, I, I guess, who's the main character, Jin or Laura? I always kind of felt like Laura's the main character. I mean, but, yeah. but, but both of them, you could you could make the argument that they're both kind of main characters. Yeah, and and I just feel like Torna didn't tell me anything about Laura I didn't already know, and, Tor- and Torna didn't change anything about, like, Laura's involvement in the story. It's nice to see more of her because... She's like literally fridged throughout Xenoblade 2. Uh, she's just suspended in cryostasis, basically, and you know of her and you hear about her. But it's, it was nice to have an opportunity to play as her. Um, I just felt like her actions didn't matter that much. Uh, Jin is very important. Jin is like hugely crucial to the Xenoblade 2 storyline. I think um, maybe I just had expectations that something unexpected would happen. And I felt like all of Torna was super predictable. 
like I knew exactly what was going to happen and I did not find anything surprising about any of the character moments. Like, yep, this is how Hugo's going to be. Yep, this is how Laura's going to be. Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe that's like me being harsh on it, but I, I well, what's, what's your take on that? It's kind of, I mean, that's kind of what happens when you do a prequel DLC that's that of, of like this, that's telling the story of a time period that gets discussed or shown to you a lot in the main game is it's kind of inevitable. I'm so I, I, I understand that. Um, I was, I guess I was kind of hoping for like some interesting breadcrumbs to follow. Like, uh, well, once you play, I'm making this up. Like once you play Torna, you know that, um, uh, what's Adam's retainer's name? Milton, like Milton is Nia's granddad and he actually becomes the blade that turns into Dromark or like, Something like that, I would have found a little bit more interesting, and like maybe if they had hints to it, even peppered throughout the main game, um, that way I could make a connection. But I didn't feel like there was that sort of connection happening anywhere. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think, I think. Well, I think the question. One of the questions is. I mean, um, so this was originally supposed to be part of main of the main game. It was originally supposed to be. Uh, I'm not sure if it was going to be quite in the form that we saw it, it might've been more truncated, but they they originally wanted this content in the main game and they had to cut it because they knew they weren't going to have enough time or money to finish it. Oh, okay. Um, Takahashi has said that this is this, what the idea is. So when they, when they were approached about having, you know, post-game DLC, it was like, oh, I've got that, that's this. Um, and so I don't know, maybe it would have worked better as mm. part of the main game. Um, and I don't when it when it got reshelved into this DLC. I don't know how they, if they made any significant changes to story or characters or whatnot in order to facilitate it being that. And I don't know necessarily how the concept of it being uh, a standalone release came out, um, and if they if they really designed it to, to to function as that, or if that was more a Nintendo thing wanting to have it. Uh, you know, I don't know, for possibly extra sales or whatnot. Um, if they did, if it was, if, if you know, if there was a significant part that was sort of designed with that, that idea in mind, then it's, it's not an enviable position to straddle to make content that has to potentially work for both existing players and new players. Mm, and that, that's, yeah, straddling that line of... Obviously, we all wanted more detail about what happened during the Aegis War, even having played the main game, because they only show you tidbits. They don't show you the whole context. They never, they, you know, Adam wears a hood for all of yeah. the main game. Um, he doesn't really get fleshed out beyond being Mithra's driver at the time. And that is one thing I think is really great about Torna is it really fleshes him out through main story and through side content. You, he's, he's a great guy. Um, yes. But like, you know, where's the line between we have to tell these story beats that people expect based on the the uh, the, the flashbacks and it has to work. It has to reveal enough about what happened to satisfy curiosity of what was the Aegis War. But do we really want to like be dropping bombshells left and right that would only work with pe for people who have played the main game in context, or do we want to? That that's where that's why I'm not quite sure. You know, development wise, where the thinking was was it? You know, at some point once it became DLC, 
did they make an effort specifically to have it work both ways or was it really always intended? I mean, I, I think you could, I think you could see it both ways. I, there's one thing in particular that they don't do in the ending that I think a lot of people expected them to do. I'm not going to say what it is uh, to avoid spoilers. I probably know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> um, I think it actually works really effectively in a certain way because everyone who plays the main game knows exactly what happens. And it's almost a little creepier and more disturbing that they don't show it because they lead you into it. So, you know what happens, but they don't directly show it to you. Um, and I know that there's possibly disappointment because that's a huge pivotal moment that literally decides a certain character's actions in the main game. But thinking about it, I was thinking about it after finishing it, like why wouldn't they have shown it? They don't, I think, didn't want to put all of the cards on the table and show you absolutely everything that happens. They still wanted there to be a few surprises in terms of why characters doing what they do, what is a certain character. There's like two specific things they don't show that I expected them to. And I, I have to feel like it was intentional to still have a little bit of mystery in the main game for people who maybe play Torna first. Hmm. Um, because they show, they show other, you know, stuff that gets presented in flashbacks. There's a bunch, I mean, they pretty much show you almost every, uh, flashback cutscene happens in this game with the exception of two really big ones and they could have just shown all of it and I have to think that or have to wonder if it was intentional to you know give you your answers but not answer everything so that you'd still have that surprise in the main game and one of those things is literally it's arguably the event that really kind of creates the conflict in Xenoblade 2. I mm. think you could make the argument that had this thing, had this event not happened, things would have went a lot differently in the main game. So, I don't know. Okay. I, yeah, I hear where you're coming from. Um, yeah, I, I guess, like, what I'm trying to communicate is uh, I probably didn't have the highest overall impression of the story after I finished it. Well, I'm, I'm being, I'm softening way too much. I didn't. I didn't have the best impression of the story after I beat it because I did feel like they missed opportunities to capitalize on a couple of the story threads that I wanted, like resolved or fleshed out or whatever. But I totally agree that um, Xenoblade 2 Torna is like a more streamlined, um, like the fats trimmed out. It, I think it's a more fun game to play and the uh, speedier and sort of enhanced combat system, I think is a big part of that. And it's not even that like the combat is drastically different. It's that they have the same core system and then they iterated on it and made it better. So yeah. I kind of wish we had access to that in the main game, but I understand it would be very difficult with the plethora of blades available to you. Um, yeah. I, uh, the music we haven't really said anything about, but I think the oh. music is fantastic. Yes, it's really great. So there's a, there's a fair amount of reused music. Um, which is what it is. But the new music is beautiful. There's a, a very kind of jazz kind of undertone to the main battle theme and area themes. Um, there's a couple of battle themes that have been uh, remixed. I'm, I'm 
they're both Mitsuda battle themes, so I'm presuming that Mitsuda remixed them. And those are acoustic versions of the battle themes from the main game, so it's really nice. Uh, there's a beautiful new ending vocal theme uh, by Jen Bird, um, uh, you know, composed by Mitsuda. Um, and it's actually, I think it's my favorite Sunoblade theme. Um, I like uh, One Last You from uh, the main game, but I really like um, uh, this this new ending theme. And it's a very beautiful kind of haunting uh, ending theme that plays during the, the final cutscene and... Um, the lyrics in particular, I think, are really important. Um, once you once you know the context of what's happening in that scene, they're yeah. really impactful. So that makes for two things I need to look up after this episode. I need to look up the new Omega music that I hadn't heard, and I want to look up this. Uh, I want to rewatch the ending um, and and listen to the lyrics because I didn't. I think I didn't pay that much attention to the lyrics when it was over. But um, it's. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's you can interpret it. And I think that's what it's intended to be as a particular character singing to another. So, okay. yeah. All right. Yeah. The, the music I think is another is, is one of the best aspects of it. I think the new main battle theme is better than the previous one. And, uh, I really want that soundtrack. I hope they, they've got to release it. Yes. Gormot. I've, I've gone on record. I, I did a review of the main game's music. I don't really like Gormot very much in the main game. I love Gormot, the Gormot remix in this. I, I wish I could have it in the main game because it's better. It's good. It'd be nice if you could toggle it, kind of like you can toggle the uh, battle themes for Elma yeah. and for Shulk and Fiora. So. They should just do like a, a battle toggle DLC thing. Why not? Yeah. Oh, um, that actually reminds me. We will probably address a little bit of uh, listener feedback later in the episode, but I did want to say thank you to Mitchell, who wrote into the show and talked to me a little bit about the Elma boss battle that they added via DLC. He gave me some strategies for um, beating Elma because uh, the second fight against her is very long. And uh, if you don't, like, there's a thing where she summons clones and you have to, like, you can seal her from doing it. And. Uh, so we had a nice little discussion about that. So thanks for writing in, Mitchell. I appreciate that. And uh, I appreciate being able to have a party with Elma, Shulk, and Fiora in the main game. It's kind of fun. And you can have Cosmos and Telos. So you can have a whole bunch of Xeno folks. I wonder if they'll ever add anything from Xeno Gears. Probably not. I mean, nostalgia throwback. Because Square owns it. They, oh, they, true. Had to, they had to They're negotiate a deal. Tight, they? Yeah. No well Is Chronicles X stuff in there, too? Elma. Yeah. The main character, oh, well, character. whatever, main character, quote-unquote main character. Oh, she's, she's totally the main, I mean, the we're not the main character, she is. Yeah. yeah. Tatsu is the main character. They're all ah, the No! Yeah. <laughs> worst, <laughs> worst Nopal, I mean, I hate it. Tora is not much better, but I still like Tora more than, than Tatsu. Yeah, I think Tora's <laughs> better, which is very sad. But... Okay, well, Xenoblade 2 Torna, it's, uh, you've heard our thoughts. I, I don't really know that I can condense that into one sentence, but conflicting. Do you think this will, any of this will bleed into, like, Xenoblade Chronicles 3? Like, this will be, like, the new direction for gameplay to make it a little tighter and faster? Or? Mm, I, I don't know. I mean, That's battles have because... changed a lot, so. I mean, if they don't Xenoblade have 2 the feels same a lot mechanics. slower than its prequels. It does. Yeah. I think it's a lot slower. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, I mean, 
I think we all mm-hmm. hope that there will be a Xenoblade Three, but I think the next, mm-hmm. you know, the next thing for Monolith Soft is going to be their their new, uh, like medieval, right? Era. Oh, really? Well, no, not I don't know that it's going to be medieval. I think the concept art that we saw wasn't it? Or, 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 or am I thinking? thinking of the Atlas thing? I'm thinking of Atlas. I'm sorry, no. Right, the Project Re Fantasy by um, Yeah Pesciano. That's, good. that's what I was thinking just now too. I didn't know if Monolith had anything on the cards at the moment. I imagine maybe we'll see some more of like their B team stuff before we see another big, big impressive Monolith uh, game. But there, there were. Uh, is it one of the Monolith devs was saying that he wanted the to make Monolith? Right, but Ben and Amco has the rights, so yeah, which is a shame. I don't Those know. Two if games were really They were. I don't know if Ben Amco is interested in um, pursuing that. So I hope they are. That'd be nice. Hmm. Maybe they could work together. Who knows? Who knows? Weirder things have happened. We're getting uh, like every character ever in Smash Brothers, so collaborations <laughs> never end. Well, uh, I wanted to also talk about, uh, Caitlin, you have been playing the newest Assassin's Creed. I haven't played one of these in many years, so I am not at all in a position to judge how it is better or worse than any previous ones, but you're digging into Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is like freshly out this week, right? Yes, it's coming out this Friday, October 5th, and I have the honor to uh, to work on reviewing it for RPG Fan. I'm not going to get it, it's not going to be done in time for a day one review, but I'm I'm working on getting through it as fast as possible. I'm about 26 hours or so, I think, into it, um, but this is, it is an odyssey of sorts. I think I'm probably only maybe about a third of the way through the main story. So I still have a lot to see, and uh, what I have seen thus far, um, I like. I it, it's uh, I think there's a lot of interesting things that they've done to uh, to sort of it. It's not necessarily like it's hard changes. It's very much kind of an iteration on the origins formula. Um, so it's it's kind of it's in that vein. The 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 by and large the very basic gameplay is going to feel very similar to Origins, but they've made lots of little improvements um, uh, across multiple different systems. Um, so I think I think right now where I am, of course, as, you know, as immersed as I am in the game, um, you know, maybe my opinion will settle a little bit, but I think right now I like it a lot more than Origins, and I enjoyed Origins a lot, uh, more than I thought I would. Um, so it is, of course, set in ancient Greece, um, and you get to play as either Cassandra or Alexios, um, who is basically, they are a descendant of, uh, of King Leonidas of Sparta. Mm-hmm. And they have a, an interesting artifact of his, uh, the Spear of Leonidas, that lets them do things. Um, and that's part of the main story of what I've seen thus far has to do with that artifact and with who Cassandra I'm just going to call them her Cassandra because I'm playing as Cassandra. Um, it's going to get a little old saying Cassandra or Alexios. Right, yeah. Um, but who she is, who they are. Um, and I have to say, what my biggest criticism about Origins was that I thought the story, uh, I thought the story just didn't work really well. It was, it wasn't presented in the best way. It wasn't paced in the best best way, and it felt like it was just a hit list you go through the game just basically i have to kill this person i have to kill that person 
Um, thus far, I think the story in Odyssey is much improved. It's a personal story centering around your character, um, who they are, their family, uh, that kind of thing. It's drawn me in more uh, than uh, Bayek's story did in Origins. Mm. Um, and I'm getting to that. There's been some revelations that I'm like, pretty heavy stuff so it has the potential i think to be ultimately a uh a more personal and and uh more epic story um than origins but of course i'm only about again a third of the way through so uh my jury the the jury will be out for me as until i finish that and see how everything uh, comes together um, I think Cassandra in particular, and I ha that's who I picked to start off with, because of course you give me a girl to you know, as a choice. I'm going to pick the girl. <laughs> I think she in particular is excellent. I love her. Uh, I love her. Her actor. She does a great job with uh, her voice and her um, her physical presence and and uh, emotions and whatnot. Um, I, I will try to go back, and I'm not going to be able to do two full playthroughs, but I will try to go back and play as Alexios too to, to see um, how he kind of goes through. Um, I know that they obviously they they did the voice acting and the mocap, you know, their own kind of style. So it's not like it's going to be the same uh, presentation. It will probably feel a little bit differently going as each character. Um, but Greg, you weren't you weren't mocapped for the main character in this game too. <laughs> Uh, no, no, I was not. Just a friend of mine named Michael Antonakos. He plays Alexios. Oh, you weren't joking. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was not. No, um, he went to university <laughs> with my fiance. Ooh. We'll get another reason to pick yeah. it up, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah, I do want to check it out. So, I mean, um, so that's that's the story and the characters. Uh, the, the biggest sort of changes as far as, like, from an RPG perspective are of course um, the dialogue system that they added into the game. So um, every cutscene, every competition you're in, you will have dialogue options. Um, it's it's kind of what I expected thus far. It's it's not quite as say um, involved as um, as like say the earlier Mass Effect, Mass Effect One or Mass Effect Two, where you basically have a dialogue uh, wheel for everything you say that your characters will say things on their own before you have any input. And so to a certain extent, there's a bit of an established character there that you you get to watch and then you you, you can then make choices uh, uh, based on your preferences. So it's kind of... Um, you decide pivotal moments kind of thing? Yeah, sort of. I mean, you will have dialogue choices in every cutscene. It's not that you really go through anything without having an input, but there's there's a fair amount of, of, of uh, dialogue that happens without your input. And I think, you know, that that does, I think, ultimately work uh, for the game. I mean, it would have been a lot of work to have every single line. I mean, as much as I like the, the style of Mass Effect uh, 1 and 2, where pretty much you had in, were in control of every single thing Shepard says, that's a lot of work. And for a game this big... Um, with uh, the story being so sort of at times anyway, being uh, sort of hyper focused on uh, your 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 character, I can see why they they you know didn't do that. And also, I mean, this is their first stab at it. Um, we'll mm. see. It'll be interesting to see the next game, assuming that they continue to keep it an action RPG, if they make changes. Um, 
Uh, and so, the, uh, so alongside having dialogue choices, a, a big theme that, that Ubisoft has sort of, you know, put out there is about choice and that this is a game where you make choices that can impact your story. Um, and I have seen thus far the impacts of some of my decisions come back. Um, one of them, I apparently made a bad decision. Uh-oh. I, 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 well, I let some sick people they were going to be killed by soldiers because they had plague and I let them go and I killed the soldiers because they wouldn't let them go. And then I came back and I heard that um, apparently the plague spread. Of course it did. <laughs> I love it. So, I mean, this is something I'll, I'll, I'll look at really closely because um, I should be able to, it's an early uh, story choice. Um, so I'll, I'll make the opposite choice and see how that changes things. Um, yeah. But it, it certainly seems like my choice there had a, an impact. Um, and and there's there. Yeah. And there are other things, you know, with main story quests, uh, you know, you can decide if you kill a character or whatnot. And if you kill them, that could have at least I believe it could have repercussions later on. Um, So, again, like with this, the whole breadth of the main story, the jury will be out until I get through all of it to see really how much my choices affect things. But uh, certainly more than every other Assassin's Creed game where you didn't have any choices and it was just static cutscenes. I think this will, if you, that, that's what kind of what you're looking for, this will scratch that itch in a, in a way. Um, alongside that, they've done other things. Uh, you now can uh, upgrade all of your equipment instead of just your weapons. Origins, you could only change your weapons. You you could uh, glamour basically different outfits, but you didn't uh, actually change different pieces of your armor, and you can do that here. They all have stats. There's some choices to be made with regards to equipment because uh, on top of improving your damage or your defense, all equipment can also do things like improve your assassin damage. So so anything that you do when you try to assassinate an enemy or when you use bow skills, you can uh, change that. So you sometimes have to shuffle between different gear pieces depending on what bonuses they give you. Um, It's... It's it's kind of you know it's stats and it is what it is. It's um, I haven't really necessarily found super mm-hmm. cool, super amazing, unique stuff, but I assume that that kind of stuff exists because there were some like legendary gear pieces and origins that were like your swords are on flame or something <laughs> like that. So you gotta have swords on fire. Come on. Yeah. You actually have a skill now where you can, for a time, set your swords on fire or add a poison uh, 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 thing to your swords to poison your enemies and stuff like that. Wow. So that's, cool. yeah. that's a lot more RPG than like what I've experienced because you know I haven't played one since two. So I'm used <laughs> yeah. to just like stab the guy, you know, not yeah. like full RPG combat. So, yeah, um, and I mean, like you know. It's a big game, so there's lots of things I could talk about, but I don't want to go on and on and on. Um, there are there are things like bases, uh, like uh, forts and what and whatnot that return from the main game, where you have to like you you have objectives once you reach an enemy controlled area to like kill the commander and loot this stuff. They added an extra element uh, because this is set during the Peloponnesian War. 
in ancient Greece uh, where uh, Athens and Sparta are at war with each other. So every region is controlled by one uh, city or the other and your actions can weaken uh, the hold that one city has on it. Um, or uh, usually it's you're, what you're doing is weakening the hold. And then eventually once region gets weak enough, you can engage in a conquest battle. This is that gigantic battlefield full of like, you know, gobs and gobs of people whacking each other with swords and you can wade through the fray and attack people. And basically your goal is depending on who you're fighting for is to just kill enough people captains, regular mooks, whatnot, to win the day. And then when you do the op, whatever side you're fighting for, presuming that you are successful in the battle, uh, will take control and whatnot. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's, it's an, an, an added mechanic, uh, added thing to do. Um, I don't yet know if it has any impact on story or the endings. It just seems to be mm. an extra thing to do. Um, but it's kind of cool. There are gigantic battles. And you can... You can fight for one side and fortify that area for them, and then you can turn right around and undermine them and do it all again and fight for the opposing side. So you could, <laughs> there's some particular some uh, potential hijinks there where like, I help Sparta win this area, then I'm gonna turn around and help Athens win it back I, yeah, for reasons. So interesting. And um, yeah. I, I I don't know again if it has any greater impact or if it's just because the back set of this time period is there's a war going on between Athens and Sparta. So um, the world is it's really pretty. I like it. Um, you know, I've you know set in Greek, ancient Greece, so you've you know what you might expect, but it's a beautiful presentation. Um, there's so far, I feel like there's it's much more colorful and. I'm liking the variety in locales more than origins, which was a lot of desert and a lot of yellow and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, it's so, supposed to be very rooted in the historical like landmarks and mm -hmm. um, graph, uh, geographical kind of alignment of everything too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the map is, it's, from what I can tell, it's pretty much the entire map of the entire, you know, for most part of Greece uh, and uh, the Aegean Sea and a bunch of islands in the Aegean Sea, um, including big ones like uh, Crete is there. Um, it's wild. Like that. Uh, I'm a little bit sad that uh, Corfu is not included. That's the island that my grandfather uh, grew up on. Um, oh. So... Sad, although maybe uh, we know there's going to be DLC. Uh, the season pass has already been detailed as to what it con con uh, contains. Um, Origins added to, uh, with its major DLC content, it added two new whole areas that are connected to but separate from the main play space in the main game. So maybe maybe we'll go to Corfu as part of DLC. I'm not, I'm not like really holding out hope because it's, it's just... <laughs> It's just an island off the coast of Greece. So, I mean, like, I don't know why, but, yeah. you know. But it's relevant to you. <laughs> it's relevant to me because it's where my family's from and I've never been to Greece. So I'm kind of living vicariously experiencing, uh, obviously, ancient Greece. It's not what it looks like now, per se, but. Um, You're not going to stumble across a descendant or, sorry, an ancestor of the Argeros clan while you're maybe. out assassinating. Maybe, so far, yeah, nobody has cool. last names. So, you know, outside of, you know, historical figures. So, any uh, one of them could be. Any one of them could be my 
my ancestor, yeah. <laughs> and any one of them probably is. You, pro you probably are descended from Leonidas or something like that. Oh, wow. I mean, it has been, it's kind of nice playing as Cassandra. Not, I don't, uh, not that she's a dead ringer for me, but, you know, the whole, she is a Greek lady with the brown eyes and the brown hair. And, I mean, to that extent, it's kind of cool. Because um, yeah, you can see something of your, this is like we're talking about Time Spinner. You can see something of yourself in a character that you're playing, and it feels nice. Yeah, so yeah. it's cool. Um, and the only other thing I guess I'll mention is that uh, uh, naval uh, travel and combat is back in uh, Odyssey. Um, they took a break uh, in uh, the games after Black Flag, but it's a major component of Odyssey. And um, I mean, I can clearly see how they've kind of kept it, uh, the basics of it anyway, from uh, Black Flag. And uh, it, it was used sparingly in like uh, uh, minor things in, in uh, Origins that you didn't really have a whole lot of control over. Um, so it, it functions a lot the same, but they're, they've done things like you can recruit lieutenants uh, to serve on your ship and they all have different bonuses that they can give to like they might improve your arrow damage or they might uh, they might uh, let you uh, defend more from from incoming damage. You can recruit pretty much anybody in the world. Um, if you knock them out, you can it's it's kind of um, silly in that all you do is you knock them out and then you pick them up and they run to your ship automatically. Like they could be, they could have been trying to kill you a second ago. And yeah. Um, sounds a little Metal Gear 5. Yeah, oh, it's yeah, kind of like that. Holding them up in the sky. The, you're, you're told that your, um, your first mate, uh, basically you get them to your ship and your first mate will talk them into it. So there's that. But I mean, like it's kind of silly. Um, but it's potentially so you could recruit anybody um I think outside of, I'm sure, some main story characters that you can't touch that way uh, to serve on your ship. And you can use resources to upgrade things like the hull or, you know, the power of your arrows or how often you can fire. So there's there's some upgrade potential there. Um, and so far, it's been cool. Uh, I've yet to see whether or not it's going to annoy me as much as uh, ultimately Black Flag's uh, ship traveling and combat did um i think what i mentioned before so far is held up because black flag was basically just an ocean with a bunch of small islands it felt a lot more tedious to travel around but you have this huge mainland in greece to explore and as well as the aegean sea so i think that it's going to be it might hit that sweet spot of hey cool ship combat without feeling like oh, I had to travel on my ship to this <laughs> island and probably deal with a bunch of random pirates along the way that will kill me. Ugh, kill me now, kind of thing. So. <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing your full and nuanced take. Not that this wasn't nuanced, <laughs> but your, your full review when that comes up on the site. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It'll be as soon as I can, can make it. And, and uh, yeah. Sweet. I look forward to it. Mm. Well, who wants to talk about smartphone games, you guys? You know how much I love those, right? It's not like I've gone on record several times talking about how much I can't stand gacha games and how I usually don't play games on my phone. Well, let me talk to you about... 
Yeah, they did. I wanted to tell you about a little something that has um, caused me to rethink all of my choices throughout my entire life. And uh, how <laughs> oh wow. No, not really. Um, so Nintendo just released um, their big collaborative smartphone game with Psy Games, who is known for... God, aren't they doing, like, the action, uh, like, Grand Blue Fantasy game? Am I thinking of somebody else? Uh, Platinum, yeah. Well, then, what the hell has Psy Games done? Uh, I'm typing it in right now. Psy Games has done... Uh, I think yeah, Psy Games they, is they doing they one as well. Psy Games just did Grand Blue Fantasy then. Oh, like, okay. The Right, so, right. so Nintendo was doing doing this collaboration with them to, you know, presumably make a lot of money, and <laughs> uh, to that end, they have released Dragalia Lost. It is their first original IP smartphone game. Um, up to this point, Nintendo has released Super Mario Run, Fire Emblem Heroes, and Animal Crossing Pocket Camp, um, which are all just mobile versions of their existing IPs. So now we have Dragalia Lost. And um, it is a gotcha-ass gotcha game. Uh, it's like one of those you play as... Uh, it's very like traditional fantasy, um, pretty tropey. Like you play as this prince that's the... like He's like the seventh in line heir to a, a medieval-ish kingdom. And he has to forge pacts with the elemental dragons across the land to like save the world from being thrown out of balance elementally or whatever. Um, and, uh, so gosh, I don't even know where to begin with this. So it's, it's set up in a mobile game or sorry, a gotcha game format wherein like you have, you can summon rare characters, which are like a, you know, slot machine, random polls, um, for characters who may or may not be more powerful depending on how rare they are. And you have daily quests to check in on and, uh, missions are structured such that it's like you do one level and it costs stamina to do and, you recharge stamina in real time. So it's all of the trappings of, you know, your regular gacha game, which I have repeatedly railed on in the past. And I'm acknowledging that now because I, for some reason, I'm drawn into this game right now. And I don't think that it does anything like remarkable in terms of its mission structure or whatever that's better than any of these other gacha games. But something about it, like I've been playing it for two days and I don't, Hate it. What I do hate is myself for playing it. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, Dragalia Lost is more like it's an action RPG. So it's not just like it, it can be mindless. Don't get me wrong. But it's instead of being like a turn-based battle format where you just hit it on, put it on auto, and leave it alone. Um, you have these little levels where you move around. The control is actually pretty intuitive for a touchscreen. Um, you just like you slide uh, your finger depending on where you want to move, and you tap to attack. Um, you have a party of four characters, and characters are aspected to elements, and uh, everybody has, like, super moves that you can unleash, and the main gimmick, besides being an action RPG, is you can transform into a dragon, since that's the crux of the story, is the main character making pacts with dragons. So you have, like, a, you know, super mode you unleash, where you transform into a giant dragon and just kind of rampage. Um, it feels really good to to fight enemies, they've really nailed the whole, like, I feel strong and I get to wipe out a horde of enemies um, kind of thing. But what's drawn me to the game and what's not, like, you know, immediately made me hate it, and who knows, I might stick with this game for a week and then drop it like I do with every other gacha game, um, but it'll just last a week longer than the rest. Uh, it's, like, just so well-polished, and I know polish is a very nebulous uh, thing to quantify, but 
it's got such ridiculously good production values. Like the budget for this game must be insane. Um, it is very bright and colorful. It has like very appealing art that doesn't delve into being like weird or fetishy or creepy or whatever. Um, it's just like very eye pleasing. It's got nice 3D models for the characters that are expressive and well animated. It looks like just kind of a, it, it could be like a nice PS3 or PS Vita game uh, with the, the quality of the, the character models. It's like fully, not fully, it's voice acted in English and certain event scenes are fully voiced. Um, they've got, it's, it's good voice acting too. The localization is actually really good. Like it's still a pretty rote story, but the moment to moment writing is quite, uh, it's sharp. It's got a lot of character to it. Like instead of somebody saying, oh no, we uh, we better flee the village before the monsters attack, somebody might say, and it's not too, it's not too much, but somebody might say something like, I can't even think of anything. We better get out of here before they fry our bacon and sh shit. I can't think of anything clever. It's just more personality. There is more personality, yeah. Um, and listen to me, I'm, I am a localization editor and I can't think of anything to say. The I just find that the writing is like kind of fun and not just totally throwaway because pretty much every gacha game I played up to this point, with the exception of maybe Dissidia, uh, Opera Omnia, Final Fantasy, has had, like, I don't care about any of the dialogue in those games between missions that I've played because it's all just like superfluous nonsense to get you to the next point. And I'm not saying that Dragalia Lost doesn't have that, but it's well localized enough or like entertainingly written enough that I don't mind reading it. So besides being very polished, like the soundtrack is weirdly amazing. It's uh, heavy, heavy J-pop. There is a J-pop opening theme on the title screen and there's like uh, several J-pop melodies. One, one that plays in your main menu, there's a J-pop boss theme. And I get kind of shades of like Tokyo Mirage sessions. Oh my gosh. So I'm weirdly smitten with the soundtrack. And I was playing it the other day and uh, I was at a couple of uh, friend's house and we were just like sitting there all kind of like doing our own thing. And I was playing that. And uh, one of them was like, what is that? And then we ended up all kind of like gathering around and talking about it. And my boyfriend was like, why is the music for that game so good? Like, <laughs> isn't that just one of those phone games? It's not that it's revolutionary in any way and again i may end up dropping it before too long but that's like it's just weirdly it's well done like if if you're gonna play a gotcha game i feel like this is the one like it's kind of the best realization of that format i've seen so far and don't get me wrong it's got all of the the exploitative kind of practices that i have spoken out against in the past and i'm not like taking that back because i still don't like the idea of you know, you got to pay real money if you want to get ahead once you hit a certain wall or whatever. But for for the time being, I haven't hit that wall. Um, I'm finding it to be a really cute distraction. And I like the soundtrack a lot and will, like, at the very least buy that when I when it comes out. But if you were like me and you're super anti-gacha game in general, like, maybe this will melt your cold heart like it melted mine a little bit. Um, at the very oh, least, no. it's free. Oh, no. Don't, it's free. Don't, don't make just a Devil May Cry reference. It. Don't do it. Not out in the... <laughs> UK yet. Oh, so, is it not? No. So I'm yeah. safe. Okay, you're <laughs> safe for the time being. It is a it is a gotcha ass gotcha game. It is uh not going to change your mind if you hate gotcha games, probably, unless um it somehow gets through like it did to me. I don't know what's going on. I don't know who I am. I don't recognize myself and I want to move on to the next section of the podcast. Greg, <laughs> That's you fair. solicited some questions, I guess, on our Discord, did you not? 
from our wrist. I sure did. Reached out to RPG fan fans. And because, uh, yeah, back when you kind of restarted things with the podcast uh, post Rob, uh, we were trying to reach back out to the audience and we were asking questions or taking up like Twitter questions and stuff. And I kind of wanted to get back to that because we just haven't had time to make time for that as much. So, yeah, we did get a few questions, some that we'll cover, some not so much. Uh, first, though, I did want to give a shout out to Moose on Discord, who says uh, they haven't been listening to the podcast for the past couple of months, but uh, they're coming back to listen to probably Retro and ourselves uh, now that their mother's feeling better. So I just wanted to say, I'm glad your mom's feeling better, Moose. Uh, we're happy to have you back as a listener. Yeah. Time. That being said, uh, Cyanide had a few questions for us, but the one that stood out for me uh, was, what is your favorite recent JRPG soundtrack? And then mm. we'll go around the uh, proverbial room and ask folks uh, to pick out their fave. Although I feel like, given some of today's discussion, we might already have that. But we'll let's hear what you get to say. Uh, Caitlin, let's go with you first. Xenoblade 2, Xenoblade 2, Xenoblade 2. Any answer b- besides Xenoblade 2 is wrong. Ooh, <laughs> I'm fighting Xenoblade 2 over Torna? Well, I kind of mean both, but... Okay, so that Torna is in that blanket. They, they both qualify because the soundtrack officially from the main game released this year and then Torna came out, so... Legit? Jury allows. Derek, how about yourself? See, this is tough because if we're talking this year, not everything this year that I want to hear has released yet, and that includes uh, Legend of Heroes Sen no Kiseki 4, or Trails of Cold Steel 4, which just released in Japan, like, yesterday oh, right. or something. Ah, yes. listen to it. So first of all, I need to mute that hashtag on Twitter so I don't get any spoilers. Second of all, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the soundtrack should be releasing, I don't know, probably, like, soon? I hope. Um, Falcom is usually really good about releasing their soundtracks through iTunes, uh, like abroad. So I will have to keep an eye on that. And that may well make my soundtrack of the year based on their track record. But that's not fair because it's not out yet. So um, just to sort of give a predictable answer, I would say Octopath Traveler has been incredible so far. Um, Some of the best boss and character themes I think I've heard in a long time. And uh, the Stormblood soundtrack for Final Fantasy XIV officially came out this summer. And I think that's just full of amazing stuff. And then most recently, I really like Dragalia Lost's music. So. Nice. Is the Burn stuff on the, that soundtrack release as well? It's no. not. No, uh, oh, Stormblood soundtrack included uh, everything, I think, up through 4.3. So it ends with, uh, with Tsukiyomi's battle music, which is awesome. And I love yeah. it, and I'm super happy that it was on there, but we'll definitely get another soundtrack release probably uh, before uh, expansion next year that will include the music from this patch. And if I... We could almost have two more patches. There's enough time for two more patches, so yeah. so Seems maybe one nice. or two more patches. So. And wrap up. What you um, I mean, this year has been chock full, uh, but in terms of JRPG soundtracks, there's not like a whole lot that's um, that hasn't been mentioned. Well, what else have you like, played? Uh, uh, I'll let you I'll I find... out a bit. Uh, okay. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um, oh, sorry. I, I, I find the Monster Hunter World soundtrack pretty uh, enjoyable. Um, it's quite pleasant to listen to when you're playing that game. Um, the last soundtrack that I really, really, really liked was Heaven Will Be Mine, which I, uh, the 
visual novel from Worst Girls Games that I um, oh. reviewed earlier this month. A uh, very sort of um, industrial synth poppy, kind of experimental, but still has a poppy edge. Um, but I also wanted to mention um, a JRPG with a very good soundtrack that's probably going to get overlooked this year, and that's Alliance Alive. Oh, that does have an amazing soundtrack. Yeah, for a not very amazing game. <laughs> yeah, the game's alright. I yeah, forget if it came out this year because it's—I don't know—it seemed like forever ago, but it was only maybe March. Yeah, that's March a, is a long that's time ago. Soundtrack, isn't it? Mm-hmm. it? I think a long time ago. That may have been the first episode of Random Encounter where I took over as the uh, primary host and started adding music because I know that I used I so. music from that game on the episode. So that sounds about right, actually. Yeah, it's super good. I love all of the world themes in that, like the rain world and uh, the caged world and such. Mm. The battle themes are good, too. But, good choice. Uh, yeah, that is good. Um, I'm also going to echo Derek that I think uh, Octopath Traveler just has a fantastic soundtrack as well mm. and just harkens back to a lot of what I love about games of yore and also has got some new stuff that really gets the blood flowing. Mm-hmm. But uh, thanks pretty, for that question. Like classic Square. Yeah, exactly. It's tapping into what the entire game is, seems to be about, is mm-hmm. that classic square vibe. Mm-hmm. But thanks for that question, Cyanide. Uh, Mayo also asked us what our favorite episode of Random Encounter. I'm just going to quickly answer it since everyone else is kind of, everyone is very busy uh, making podcasts, not having time to listen to them as much. Uh, but I was catching up finally. So to give that shout out to Solosi, I really was loving the top 10 SNES RPGs, the real one. Uh, and I do agree with Mud that list, but what I really liked about it was just discovering some tra- uh, games that I never have thought to play before. Like Dragon Quest V sounds really, really interesting, and I really want to play it now, for example. Oh, so, And you were saying best so, episode of our favorite episode of Retro Encounter, right? I was, yes. Yeah, okay. Sorry, did I say random accident? I meant yeah, retro. Good. <laughs> we My got bad. it. You said slow, so I figured. Derek and yes, Caitlin, exactly. I really, I really loved the um, Falcom retrospective that the three of us were on alongside Mike uh, Solosi um, back oh in yeah, 2016. That, that was a lot of fun. Oh, I was going to say, I forget when we did that. It was some time ago. Mm, I think like almost exactly two years ago. Oh, geez. You seem like the right people to talk about it, though. I mean, we do like our Falcom. Sure do. Mm-hmm. And I believe as a listener myself, before coming on to RPG Fan, I did actually listen to that one and there's a lot of stuff from Falcom and then like Derek you've been talking to me about it and uh, Solosi bought me Memories of Salsetta I think and I haven't had a chance to play it but mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff from listening to the podcast that have told me I should play some of these finally yeah and there's one of those podcasts that turned me out of that they're pretty universally good games um, if nothing else they all have great music mm. and really rocking music yes oh so, yeah so much good music I could yeah, go like on and on about Falcom soundtracks, yeah. which is why I cheated and pulled a shulk and looked to the future for my uh, favorite soundtrack of the year. Because it might very well be. Who knows? <laughs> Topical. Okay, that's three three things I need to look up after this episode is over. Music. Get on it, Derek. You got work to do. Uh, but yeah, thank you everyone for your questions. Please hit us with more. Whether it's about recent, you know, reviews we've done. If you are, if there's more interesting details you want to know, like how to get that thing out of. Uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Caitlin be like, well, I did it, and let me tell you. So, <laughs> stuff like that. We're happy to, to know. Or just, yeah, random questions of, you know, what's our favorite RPG weapon? Whatever. All that sort of stuff is really just neat to kind of 
engage you folks and make you feel like you matter because we can't do this without you. I mean, we could, but it would just be shouting into a void, which who wants that? I mean, it's a coping mechanism. (laughs) (laughs) You mean there's stuff outside of random encounter? Like, wow. Yeah, it's holy crap. My mind is blown. Love to podcast in a vacuum. (laughs) A lot of things are happening in vacuums. Um, apparently this year. Uh, Well, moving on from reader questions, thank you for bringing those to our attention, Greg. Um, We also just wanted to touch on two pretty big news stories, uh, neither of which are very cheery. But first is we heard about Telltale Games having a very sudden, from what we can tell, studio closure that led to the layoffs of uh, 250 people. Is that right? I think 275. Oof. It's incredibly shocking. Way. One of which had just been hired the week before and moved cross country, yeah. and another person who uh, now has quickly found their uh, work visa canceled and now has to leave the country on short notice. Jeez, that's rough. So yeah. that's I'm going to try not to curse, but I mean, there's no way that the management didn't know that that was happening. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm pretty pretty furious about uh about this news although you know i don't know anybody at telltale but this is um the most egregious example that i can um think of that shows why um the games industry needs unions yeah absolutely yeah between this and like the whole kurt Schilling fiasco way back when mm, big oh, time. With, uh, kingdoms of emler or yeah which relevant news THQ Nordic has that now. So maybe we'll get exciting things from that. But anyways, back to this. Yeah, it was very big mismanagement. And again, it's one of those things where it's like, they, they had to have seen this coming. They could have warned people a little better, but maybe they've just no been severance. denied. They're under, no severance. They're facing a class action lawsuit now specifically because they yeah. violated labor laws and the way that they let people go. Yeah, the the worker adjustment retraining notification of 88 says you need to give 60 days notice um, in California in particular, where Telltale is based. Um, That is, um, yeah, this would be, I know that America is very different from the UK, but like this would be, boy, some people would be going to prison um, if this kind of thing happened in the UK. Well, it just makes us wonder too, like, again, how... How have things been run up until now then? Because it always seems like it's been a company that's been functioning completely normally on a decent model that is mm. sustainable. But then all of a sudden this turnaround and well, this egregious mismanagement, it's just like, has this been going along the whole time? Has it been just a terrible company to work for? Well, now, now that staff aren't beholden to um, uh, NDAs, and in fact that they are suing the company in a class action suit, uh, reports have come out from multiple ex-Telltale people that... Um, painted a portrait of an unsustainable work environment where 70 hour mm. weeks were the norm. And then there was crunch periods on top of that with Yee. like, you know, unpaid overtime. And everybody has pretty much said this place was a nightmare to work. And this is not what this is not what this industry should be. Jesus. And that goes to show also that uh, relative or like general critical success does not in any way mean like a well-functioning company or like or even financial success because apparently they they either didn't have the money to pay their employees or they grossly mismanaged the money that they had which led to this situation happening because i mean i mean like how can you 
how can they have like announced the final season of The Walking Dead and then in the middle of it be like, oh, sorry, we're canceling it and shuttering like, the company, which by the way, staff immediately before. Yeah, exactly. And then like the subsequent response of like, well, we're reaching out to people to complete the story anyway. F that. Like, what about your employees? So, yeah. so nasty. Because because all that is is like seeking to continue to profit from this intellectual property while paying none of that back to the people that they just absolutely gutted with studio closures. So, and on top of that, like, I feel like I was just reading some really like vitriolic responses from people too of to it that some people just thought employees should stay on and work for free to help finish product. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that That's take that was works, right? the hottest of hot takes. Oh my god. And I mean, like, what their argument was that uh, modders do it for free. So clearly, professionals should be able yeah. to do. Completely missing the point Everybody of how modders have jobs. So that's mm -hmm. how they're able to do it. So, and a lot of them, yeah, it's just a passion thing. Like, there's some people do stuff for passion, some people don't. And there's nothing you can fault people for who do want to do things for to make a living at and can't afford to do it as a passion. I'm sure everyone's very passionate about their jobs and the project they were working on, but at the end of the day, they got to pay rent. Mm. They got to eat. They got to have yeah, health care. Exactly. I just, so, I'm worried someone's probably had a hot take already, but I worry that some people are, might actually, like, the shittiest of gamers might be pissed about the class session lawsuit because they're afraid that maybe it means that Telltale's tentative promise to try and finish. Oh, probably, yeah. Someone's had I that. I guarantee you're correct. <laughs> Yeah, because sure. don't take away my games. Yeah. Well, I was having this conversation a little while back with a friend um, about like just general unsustainable working conditions in the game industry or like unhealthy work habits. Or um, we were just talking about how um, Soken, the composer for Final Fantasy XIV, is always talking about how burned out he is. And it's like, that makes me worry for him. Um, mm -hmm. We've heard about how Masahiro Sakurai, the, the sort of creator of the Super Smash Brothers franchise, like overworked himself into severe illness. That poor during, guy. Um, what was that, Brawl or was that four? I don't remember. Brawl, I believe. And then I yeah. think again with four. And did his, yeah. did his, did his family leave him? I, I don't know. That, I mean, that would be- But he, he worked work. way too hard. Right. And the question so, is, is that put on himself or is that from the higher ups? Well, I think it's just expectations. Like he's yeah. he's working because he knows there are people out there who want the results of his labor. And I think that like, like ethically, that's not okay. If, if I heard that, um, like if Masahiro Sakurai was going to die tomorrow, if he didn't cancel Smash Brothers, I'd be like, cancel it. Cancel it right now. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's well-being is not worth mm -hmm. like my interest in a video game. And I want Smash super bad. So bad. But like I mean, I, I can honestly say that. And I'm not just trying to put on this front of like I'm so noble, but truly, if nope. I heard that there was a way that I could like make his life, I could save his life or something by them canceling the game, it'd be like, cancel it. Because I mean, it's this is what it's coming down to is when people are complaining yeah. about things like, ugh. Telltale's not going to finish my Walking Dead. I'm really upset about it. I mean, you have to consider that there are like real people who are making the game, and those people are no longer being taken care of, and they can't just they they won't do it for free. They shouldn't do it for free. Period. And to to expect yeah. that is ludicrous and entitled. That's absolute entitlement. That's all there is to it. The bottom line is people yeah. feel so entitled. Yeah. So I, I mean, it's 
artists creating art, but like artists are also people who need to be able to sustain themselves. And mm, we yeah. say this as we are all artists in our own way, like, you know, writers or Greg's an actor. And uh, yeah. it's like, if we didn't get paid, I mean, again, this is an example of what we do for RPG fan as a passion project, but the only reason why we can do it is because we have other ways of sustaining ourselves. Well, so, exactly. Like, I mean, every journalist should do this for free. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I write, I'm a freelance writer. I'm an editor. Like I have to get paid for my work somewhere. And just because I like what I do generally and I'm passionate about it doesn't mean that I'm willing to work yeah. for free for no reason. No. an RPG band doesn't put ridiculous demands on us. They understand that our time is willingly given just for the heck of it. Right. It's just for the passion of keeping a great site going. They don't get on our case overly about, Oh, well, you know, we come before your life, so right. You know, well, don't and to, eat, sleep, and breathe, or see your family. Play this game, please. Yeah, and to sort of loop it back into the discussion of of developer health um, or artist health, yes. we heard recently about Nobu Uematsu basically going on indefinite hiatus, um, mm -hmm. talking about how his his health has deteriorated, and I don't know that he was necessarily actively working on like a big project. But he does mm -hmm. have his band, the Earthbound Papas, and he's like a constant contributor to a lot of Square Enix projects. Um, so because of his studios, right? Uh, yeah, he has. He, well, he has his band, and um, what is? Doesn't he have his own studio as well? I feel like it was called Smile, but I could be wrong. Anyways, mm -hmm. yeah, he branched out yeah. of Square Enix itself and made his own thing, and thus right. freelanced. Wanted. So, uh, because of his his ailing health, um, he's decided to sort of step away from his creative work for the time being and uh, go on hiatus. And he, he has said that he fully intends to return once his health is better, but like the reality is that he may not get to a point where he wants to be working as hard as he was before. Um, we certainly hope that isn't the case. Like I hope he he's able to get healthy and um, we wish him the absolute best. I think I speak for everybody at RPG Fan when we say that not only has his work been hugely influential in like the games that we've uh, enjoyed playing, like it's it's been relevant to us developing into the type of people who want to come here and critique and talk about RPGs and their music and such. So um, yeah, I definitely, I definitely hope he regains his health. But I mean, even if that means, you know, living out a healthy retirement, that's, you know, that's absolutely fine. He's, yes. he has put in a um, body of work of like a lifetime achievement that few have. And I mean, yeah. even if he, he's a person. So. Yeah. So I, I say that again. So like he, he has done like a lifetime his body of work is like a lifetime achievement and I mean even even if even if that wasn't the case, even if he didn't do as many projects as he did, he's still a person and you know, whatever he decides to do at this point in his life is absolutely fine. Yeah. And and up to him. You know, yeah. just because he's uh, got a lot of adoring fans doesn't mean that he should be like expected to overwork himself into illness, yeah. which is what Sakurai did. And, you know, what some people apparently want Telltale's ex-employees to do. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's important that everybody be able to sustain themselves. So hope the best for Uematsu's health. I, I would love to hear more of his music if he composes more in the future. But you know, Final Fantasy uh, is in very capable hands with a lot of these other composers. So can um, yes. Masashi Yamauzu, um, uh, what's the Hitoshi Sakimoto. Like, we've got very, very able people at the helm who are bringing new and diverse sounds to Final Fantasy. So it's not like 
Final Fantasy won't go on without him. It's just, it's important to remember that he's a person and his legacy is very important, but so is his health. So, mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, so we wish him the best. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for today's episode of Random Encounter. So uh, if you enjoyed the show and you have questions, comments, or spare potions, please email us, podcast at rpgfan.com. Funny enough, I actually got an email mere minutes before we recorded today's episode from Arcturus, who drew me a potion, like a, a, an actual drawing of a potion. Oh, amazing. Oh. I've been sent it in. So. Post that somewhere? Uh, we should. We should. Maybe I'll try to like upload it into the body of the, the news post or something. It's very cute. Heck yeah. So thanks, thanks for the actual potion, Arcturus. Very much uh, obliged. We so, actually listened more. Yeah, we did. We asked for it, and he didn't hoard all of the potions for himself for the final boss and then never use them <laughs> like I do. So, uh, it's a real problem. It is a real problem. So in addition to emailing us at podcast.rpgfan.com, you can also follow us on Twitter at RPGFancom, and you can like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash RPGFancom. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or through the RSS feed. We did get one new review on iTunes since I started badgering however many months ago. Thank you very much. It was a five-star review, and we appreciate it very much. So uh, we appreciate you all tuning in. For me, Caitlin, Greg, and Robert Fenner, thanks for listening, and we'll see you all later. You get your full name, Robert. Robert Fenner. Mm. Robert Bibby Bennett Fennerino. We have to leave some way. And we love you.